Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. See, I don't know if you guys, you know, use AccuWeather or any type of weather thing, but, you know, we're having church out in a park next week. It's going to be 99 degrees. So I'm going to be preaching on hell. <laughs> All I can say, we're going to try and seat people in the, in the um, pavilion, which is shaded, but um, maybe bring an extra lawn chair if you have them, and umbrellas. Bring umbrellas, folks, because even down at the, um, <clears throat> when we do the baptism on the side of the, the lake, um, there, there isn't a lot of shelter there. So just bring your umbrellas, that little trick we learned in Indonesia. Uh, it's good for sun as well as rain. So bring those umbrellas, okay? But 99 degrees, let's pray maybe that it, lessons through the week. Well, you know, this morning we're going to be talking about a family, the first family. And, you know, children are a gift of the Lord, but they can also be a great disappointment to parents. Unlike Garrison Keillor's introduction to his radio show each week where he said, welcome to Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong and all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. All of us think that our kids are above average until they grow up, right? And we begin to see maybe they're not so much above average. Eve, the first mother, had high expectations for her children, I'm sure. Because when Cain was born, she literally said, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Now, there's enough grammatical information to translate those words as, I have brought forth a man, even Yahweh. I have brought forth a man, even Yahweh. And most modern English translations that italicize the little phrase, with the help of, or the help of, as added by translators to make it smoother. Eve did not believe, obviously, that she is giving birth to God, but rather to that promised one from Genesis 3.15. The couple were thinking about that, that life giver, that, that deliverer that God had promised that would crush the head of the serpent. And I believe that these early ones in the history of mankind, looked toward and looked forward to that promised one. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. It's the story of Lamech. Verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, this one, Noah, will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord had cursed. What do you think he was hoping Noah would be? That promised one. They were waiting. Those that were godly were waiting for that promised one from Genesis 3.15. Now Genesis 4 tells the story of Adam's two sons, Cain and Abel. But the greater story is the underlying progress of sin infecting the children of the first couple. God may have covered 
Adam and Eve with coats of skin and thereby atoned for their sin, which we believe he did. But sin wasn't eliminated by that act. Instead, sin would now be passed down to their children as this biblical account so accurately portrays. And it's tragic in its deadly outcome. Genesis 4 provides us the biblical account of two sons, two distinct offerings or sacrifices, two families, and out of it we derive that there are two paths in life for people to take. So let me read to you just the first portion of the text for this morning, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4 in Genesis. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the, first, or of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. His countenance meaning his face. He was wearing a sad face. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen, your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You'll be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, Oh, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground. And from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. And then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I love these narratives. I love these stories. They are jam-packed with truth. And it's foundational truth that we need to know and understand. I would say if I had to hang a title over the truth that is being promoted in this story of Cain and Abel, it's original sin. It's original sin. But let's break into it, but open in a word of prayer and ask God's help first. Father God, Thank you for these stories, and thank you that you wrote them in narratives, in stories, 
Because, Lord, when we read a story, we're able to relate to the figures in the story. We always identify with one or the other figure in the story. And, and Lord, you're trying to teach us about your character, your nature through these stories. And also the character and nature of people. And, Lord, we thank you that the truth is so clearly displayed through these narratives. Help us today to just mine the depth and the riches of this story of Cain and Abel. And we'll give you all the glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. So it says that she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and again she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now let me just say at the outset, these are the men that we're focusing on right now, Cain and Abel. This does not say that Adam and Eve only had Cain and Abel as children. In fact, later it says he had daughters and, and sons and other children. But for the sake of this narrative, God is focusing on these two children, Cain and Abel. Now, the good thing is, the good news is that Cain and, or excuse me, Adam and Eve were obedient to God's creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, given before the fall And it's commendable that they did that. There's no time frame presented in the text, but it would be safe to understand that this took place after the fall. This is after the fall took place and after the couple had been dismissed from the garden. Now there's a sharp reminder that Eve was able to experience that reminded her of the veracity or the truth of God's word. Eve would have discovered This truth, where God had told her, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. And when she brought forth her first child, she would have experienced that pain and even a greater pain. It appears that even before the fall, there would have been pain in childbearing because he says, I will greatly increase the pain in childbirth. And you see in the pronouncements of God upon the first couple for their sin, an intensification of something that was already there. And I think that that is true. You see that the ground is going to yield its fruit still, but it's going to be more difficult to get that fruit. And so he intensifies this. The pain of childbirth would be more than before. And the pain was amplified. It testifies to the faithfulness of God's word and the far-reaching consequences of sin. Because ladies, those of you who have given birth, can I ask you, did you have any pain? Of course you did. I mean, nowadays, thank God, we have morphine, we have blocks and (laughs) other things, right? I mean, seriously. I've I've heard of more than one woman. I'm going to do it naturally. I'm going to do it naturally. Morphine, give me morphine. Right? You know, they think they're going to do it naturally. Some, some are able to. But that, you know, that reflects back to God's word. That's where that came from. That's why this is foundational. The same thing we'll read about and hear about in the flood. Every time we see a rainbow, that was God's sign and promise that he's never going to destroy the earth by waters again. Right? And of course, every time we go past a cemetery... It just shouts at us, in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. (laughs) There's markers all over for the eyes that will see them. 
Now, the two boys are quite different, actually, and that becomes very, very clear as we read through the story. Uh, we see in the first verses, it says that, that Abel was a keeper of flocks, he was a shepherd, basically, and Cain was a farmer. Pretty straightforward. And the clear difference between these two brothers only intensifies and keeps on going uh, throughout the narrative. And the next thing that we read about is that they bring two sacrifices or two offerings. The verses say, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So, There are a lot of things I want to point out of just these couple of verses here. The very first thing is the phrase, in the course of time. In the course of time. It's a very interesting phrase. And literally translated, it means at the end of days. At the end of days. It's a time, it's a point in time that was designated to bring these offerings. It wasn't helter-skelter. There was was some structure here. Now, we're not given all that information. We have to kind of read between the lines, but it seems that these two boys knew that at the end of days, at this specific time or specified time, they needed to bring their offerings to God. Um, it's, It's hard to imagine that Adam and Eve would not have told their sons and all their children and everybody else about their experience in the garden. Now, you know, Adam lived 900 plus years, so we got a lot going on. There's a lot of procreation taking place, and I'm sure they related verbally what happened to them in the garden, even to the point of their fall and to the point of God shedding blood and taking the life of an animal and making them coats of skins. So I don't think that it's unreasonable to assume that they explained to Cain and Abel that those coats of skins atoned for or covered, that's what atonement means, covered their sin so they could have fellowship with God again. And hence we have this idea of sacrifices. Secondly, both Cain and Abel brought their offerings to Yahweh. Both of the boys were obedient, at least as far as that goes, pointing to the distinct possibility that Cain and Abel had knowledge that they were to bring sacrifices to Yahweh. And thirdly, most importantly, they brought two different kinds of offerings. One was acceptable and the other one was rejected. Wow. So why bring offerings? Why have sacrifices? Well, Cain and Abel needed to offer sacrifices as a sin covering an atonement for their sin because they had inherited sin from their parents through birth. The concept of inherited sin is one of the foundational teachings in the scripture. We call it original sin. While the human tendency is the view that an infant, even young Luke, just born, right, is innocent and pure. Oh, but give Luke just a little while. And something will begin to emerge, which was inherited through Matt. (laughs) Sin is evident even in small children. 
They're not innocent and pure because of original sin. Original sin is the moral corruption that we possess as a consequence of Adam and Eve's sin, resulting in a sinful disposition manifesting itself in habitually sinful behavior. I once heard a man say, have you ever heard a baby crying for the baby next to it because that baby next to it is hungry? No. Early on, they learn they have needs and they want their needs to be met and they're self-possessed, they're self-centered. And this only increases as they mature. That's why it's hard to teach children to share, right? The only answer to this inherent and inherited sin is for the individual to be born again. They need a new heart. They need to be completely transformed. And that only happens when a person consciously admits their sin and humbly trusts in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel. It's the only thing that will change a person's heart from the inside working out. We read in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because of sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is original sin. Now, the sacrifices that these boys brought were different. God responded in opposite ways to the two brothers and their, their offerings. The Lord had regard for it means he approved of Abel's offering. But Scripture reveals very clearly that he had no regard. He disapproved or he rejected Cain's offering. You see that in verses 4 and 5. Now, let me talk just a little bit about Abel's sacrifice because God mentions it first. The New Testament book of Hebrews sheds light on Abel's offering when it says this, quote, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. This is why I believe that it had nothing to do with Cain's attitude. It had everything to do with his obedience to a prescribed manner of offering. God singles out Abel's offering as being a better sacrifice. It doesn't say Abel had a better attitude than Cain did. He was more sincere. Cain wasn't sincere. It's a better sacrifice than Cain did. And by faith, he was then commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of him. No, of his offering. And that's found in Hebrews 11.4. It very clearly specifies it was his offering that he brought. The word better is also translated a more excellent or a more acceptable offering. So Abel's sacrifice involved blood and therefore testified to the death of a substitute. Abel's offering from his flock was accepted by God because it was a sacrifice that took the life of an innocent animal as a substitute for the life of Abel, the sinner. And so he, who was guilty of sin, was able to go free and continue on living and having fellowship with God. Although animal sacrifice as an atonement for sin was not formalized yet, at least in the scripture. It comes later in the Mosaic Law, where we have 
real clear definitions of how sacrifices are to be made. It appears that God required animal sacrifice even at this early time. If he hadn't made that clear, how could he judge Cain for not doing it? So that's reading in between the lines. And as a sin covering of Adam and Eve, it's important to understand that the slain animal didn't have any power to remove penalty of sin altogether. It was a sin covering. It was an atonement. And it was temporarily given by God in anticipation of the full payment of that promised deliverer that even then, at that time, they were looking forward to him. Now, it would be many years before he came. But she thought Cain would be that man. And Lamech thought that Noah would be that man, that promised deliverer. Something to specifically note is that God approved both of Abel's sacrifice and Abel himself. You've heard the phrase, love the sinner, not the sin, or hate the, hate the sin, not the sinner. <laughs> How's that fit here? Hate the sinner, or hate the sin, not the sin. We are intrinsically connected with what we do. <laughs> it's us doing it, okay? And how can you separate the behavior from the person? We see here very clearly that God doesn't make that distinction. God approved both of Abel's sacrifice and Abel himself, and it says the same thing about Cain. By coming to God in the way that was required, Abel demonstrated a humble recognition of his own sinfulness, and he exercised obedient faith in God. And Abel was accepted by God for his faith and was commended by God as a righteous man. Look at chapter 4, and you see here in verses 4 and 5, Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. So the man is directly linked to his offering. But for Cain and his offering, God had no, no regard. Now, Cain's rejected offering in contrast, Cain brought a portion of his harvest. I don't think he brought rotten corn or beans or whatever it is that he brought. I'm sure he brought the very best of his harvest because he's sacrificing to Yahweh. But it was rejected. It was not what God had prescribed. He didn't sacrifice to God as the way that we're assuming he was instructed. Furthermore, Cain's disobedience evidenced an unbelieving heart. For whatever reason, this son took a right or a left. He, he, he got off the straight path, and he decided, I'm going to do what I think would be acceptable. And therefore, God rejected both Cain and his offering. Now, God's rejection of both Cain and his offering reveals that not every way of worship devised by a person is acceptable to God. You know, you hear people say, well, I can worship God under a tree. Well, you can, but God prescribes that we gather together in what's called local churches to worship together. And if you haven't gone and seen the essential church, you need to go see it because during the COVID pandemic, the government tried to shut down churches from worshiping together from singing together, from praying together. And that's just not their domain. They don't have that prerogative or that right. 
And that whole, that whole movie is about that, and it, it's very well done. And you'd be well informed to go see that. You see, God has set forth appointed ways to do things, set a standard by which men and women are to come to him. Partial obedience is not obedience. Cain was partially obedient, and yet he and his sacrifice were rejected. He did bring the sacrifice. He brought it at the prescribed time, but he was rejected. That's partial obedience, even though he brought it. And you know why it wasn't accepted? And people will argue with me. I've taught this so many times, I can't even tell you. And, and often people will argue with me, well, how can you say it was a blood sacrifice? You don't have any warrant for it. Yes, I do. Hebrews 9.22 says very clearly, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. With the example of the coats of skins, you cannot get a skin off an animal without shedding blood. It just it doesn't make sense to me that people will go to, well, it was just his attitude that was rejected. No. No, it wasn't. Well, God loves the people that he created. He's not obligated to forgive or forget the actions of those who disregard his way. And that's true today. That's true today. The sincerity or insincerity of Cain's effort is not the issue here, but rather his unwillingness to conform to the standard his creator had appointed. That's why the Word of God is so important in studying it and understanding it. There's something called the perspicuity of Scripture, the clearness of Scripture. We can understand what this says. This is not a closed book that is really difficult, and you have to go to seminary in order to understand it. I know of people that are very, very simple, that took God's word and applied it to their lives and understood it and watched an entire people group transformed by the renewing of their minds with the word of God. And to date, they are still transformed and reproducing themselves and others as they share the gospel. So, Abel was accepted by God for his faith and was commended by God as a righteous man. Cain, on the other hand, was rejected He proudly went on his own way. In fact, as we'll see later, God actually specifies his mindset, his worldview, as the way of Cain. It's a specific way that you go. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell when God talked to him. You know, this is beautiful, because even in the face of his sin, just like his mother and father, even in the face of his rejection of what God had prescribed for him to do, God still comes to him and reasons with him. He says in verse 6, the Lord, Yahweh, said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? And he reasons with Cain. This is his mercy Outwardly, Cain professed to worship God by bringing an offering. However, Cain's belligerent response to his rejected sacrifice exposed the truth of his heart. Beneath the pretense of worship was a hidden heart of prideful independence and unbelief. He didn't believe God's word, and he didn't follow it. Now, God reasoned with Cain. God saw his heart. 
and he warned him in advance that he was very near to being ruled over by sin because its desire was for him. And his anger was opening the door for sin to actually master him, which it did. And when given full control, it would end in his death and separation from God. Tragically, Cain refused to heed God's merciful and gracious warning. Cain told his brother after, I wonder what he told his brother. Did he tell his brother his conversation with God? Or God's conversation with him? I don't know, but it says Cain told his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. Verse 8. He killed his brother. Cain's anger gave birth to murder. It's the first murder in Scripture. And the New Testament gives further insight into Abel's murder by revealing the motive of Cain's heart. Because we see in 1 John 3.12, it says this, Cain was of the evil one. Cain was of the evil one. And he slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? I, I love the Bible. It interprets itself. I have the easiest job in the world. I just need to know my Bible, right? It says, for what reason did Cain slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's the nexus of it. 1 John 3.12. Now when Cain murdered his brother, he imitated one called Satan. Because Satan is referred to as a murderer from the beginning. Cain wasn't overtaken in a temporary fit of rage and this just kind of happened because he was upset about something. Rather, his anger was seething within him and it grew out of a deep-seated jealous hatred that had its root in, its, in his heart. Cain's heart was a problem, revealing that sin he had inherited from his parents because from within, out of the heart of men, proceed even thought, evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, the Gospels tell us. We... <laughs> I don't know, you know, I'm a preacher, so I should be pounding the pulpit and standing up here really tall or something, but we don't really give sin enough credit, enough due. James tells us that anger can eventuate in murder. Jesus tells us when we curse our brother, it's as good as murdering him. We don't have God's perspective on these things, people, and we need to gain God's perspective on these things. It's serious. God responds to Cain's willful rejection with his mercy. Even at the continued rejection, God's mercy still comes forth. You see this in verses 9 through 16. There's a number of things that we can be learned learning from God's response to Cain's sin about God and his character. Number one, he is a communicator. He doesn't let you alone. Today, right now, all of you and you that are listening online, all of you are hearing my words. I'm speaking on behalf of God. This is God's word, okay? So you are without excuse. You're hearing what I'm saying. God is talking to you through me. Okay, I'm not, you know, asking for a mantle to be laid on me as some great prophet or something. I'm just saying I'm a preacher of God's word. 
And this is God communicating with you. He's a communicator. Throughout the text, we have the witness of God communicating with Canaan, asking questions, giving direction and guidance and warning, though it was rejected. Right? Secondly, God is a judge, and he punishes wrong, just as he did with Cain's parents and their sin. He judged them and meted out judgment. God is just. For Cain, the farmer, God determined to withhold plentiful harvest from his labor. This is on top of the already cursed earth. It intensified even more for Cain. And God determined Cain would spend his life as an outcast among people, a wandering man. And God's pronouncement on Cain drew from Cain a lament. This slays me. But this is so human, isn't it? Oh, my punishment is too great to bear, Lord. The audacity of this man who murdered his brother and is under the judgment of God to cry out to him. You know, it's just amazing. This is one who rejected all the offers of grace with no sign of repentance. He was solely focused on his own terrible sentence. Cain continued to think only of himself because his lament contained at least these four elements. Number one, I'm driven out of the earth, out of the face of the earth. How could you be so cruel? I'm cursed from the ground. This meant that he was sent away from that, all that was familiar, the ground that he tilled in the place of his birth and the home of his parents. Secondly, I'll be away from your face, as if he cared. I'll be away from your face. Thirdly, I'll be a fugitive, a a, a vagrant, and a wanderer driven from his happy home and from social involvement with everybody that he knew. He was banished to be a solitary wanderer left to inhabit wilder regions with which he was unaccustomed. And he whined about it to God. Fourthly, I live in constant fear and dread. I love this one. I live in constant fear and dread. I will be killed. Cain became obsessively paranoid. And this points out to the fact that there were more people on the earth at this time, and maybe he was fearing retribution or revenge from a friend of Abel. (laughs) We'd have to say a relative, wouldn't we? (laughs) And a close one at that. Maybe somebody was going to try to avenge Abel's murder, and, and he feared that. Or maybe Cain was just suffering under an unbearable weight of guilty conscience. There's been classic books written about the guilt and what it can do to a person, the guilt of their sinfulness. Now note the characteristics of Yahweh in this story. We've seen that he's a communicator and that he is a judge. He will judge wrongdoing. But he also displays the fact that he is a protector, which almost defies reason In our thinking, God mercifully protected Cain, showing that the creator God grants life and withholds death as he wills. And so he assured Cain, whoever kills you, Cain, will suffer a sevenfold vengeance from me. That was protection of Cain. And what was the infamous mark of Cain that Yahweh put on the murderer? You got to tell me if you know, because I have no idea. No idea. We're not told. The truth is, we're not told what the mark was. 
So if you read anything that says it was this or it was that, just ask for the chapter and verse, please, and you will not find it in the Bible. But it was enough to allay Cain's fear. Cain didn't fear that retribution any longer, and he went out. And it was enough to ward off revenge killing. Yet even with all of God's engagement with Cain, we read in the end, in verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. That means this, people. He walked away. This shows us the intensity of the corruption of sin. With all that we saw of God trying to enter into Cain's life and giving him direction and warning him and everything else, the sinner will turn his back on God and walk away. It really reminds me of what's going to take place in the latter times. You read this in Revelation 16, where these people that are under the curse of God, I call them earth dwellers, they're probably... um, Alive and well today, to be honest with you. These people that live only for the earth and almost worship the earth. It says, they nod their tongues in agony. And they curse the God of heaven because their pain and their sores. But they refuse to repent of what they had done. They know that they're being judged. They know where the judgment is coming and why it has come. And they're suffering under a judgment, but God's word tells us they refused to repent of what they had done. Not everybody will be saved. Not everybody turns to the Lord. And that's sobering thought. Now, as you continue on, and I'm not going to read this for the sake of time, but verse 17 all the way through to the end of well, 24, it basically tells us of the ongoing birthing and, and talks about Enoch and talks about the families of man being going on. I look at verse 19. Lamech took to himself two wives. This is the first polygamous situation. Man is not doing well. And then we see that he was, uh, he was nomadic, gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And then Jubal, who was the father of music. And then Tubal-Cain, who was in the metallurgy, a forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and a sister of Tubal-Cain. And goes on and tells us about these families. And, you know... It's interesting that Cain's wife must have been one of Adam's daughters, right? We're not told of anything else. And I guess we can surmise from that that prohibition against incest was not yet in place because humanity was genetically pure and marriage between siblings would not have had the same kind of effect as it does now. And later on, during the Mosaic Law, you have more strident declarations on who to marry and who not to marry. And though Cain had been cursed by God to wander to the earth, he defiantly established a city, again, rebelling against what God had told him to do and what would happen to him. 
And he named it after his son Enoch, which means beginning or initiation. A little chest beating going there, right? I have begun this. Um, Don't get me started on saying he was the father of the first city. (laughs) Urban. Wow. It's significant to note that Cain, the man who was abandoned by God, would become the father of pagan civilization. And it's interesting as you see Cain's line, right? This pagan uh, civilization, it continues to advance even as their degradation decreases. They get morally, morally, morally more corrupt. And I mean, I already said you've got music through Jubal and you've got metallurgy through Tubal Cain and you've got husbandry through Jabal. They used their gifts that God gave them and exploited his blessings but didn't love him, thank him or respect him as God. I often think of this when I see just phenomenal dancers or phenomenal artists, phenomenal singers that don't give two hoots for God, won't say anything about him. And they take all that glory to themselves or, or the brains of someone like Stephen Hawking, Dr. Hawking and yet defy God and give him no credit whatsoever. They're like the multitudes that live all around us today who do the same thing. They pride themselves on their family and their ability to gather riches and their homes and their cars and their cabins and their toys. And they give no glory to God, who is sovereign. Their entire lives at this time, as we see, and the lives of those that deny God are given to the world. They're marked by earthly matters and materialism and what they can get out of life for themselves. Now, on the other hand, there was the family of Adam. There's the family of Cain that I just told you about from 4.17 to 24. And then if you look at 25, it says Adam had relationship with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, verse 26, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name Enosh. Of the Lord. And so that's where I get the two families from. You got the family of Cain and the family of Adam. Now, Seth's name means appointed one. <laughs> you think she was still hoping, right? Appointed one. Seth was not that promised deliverer, but incidentally, he is listed in Luke 3:38 in the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So he's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you can see that in Luke 3.38. Now Genesis 5 is an interesting chapter, and it talks to us about the family of Adam, and God stresses a couple of very important truths at the very start of chapter 5. Look at 5, 1, and 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam, or the family of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Hmm. He created them male and female. Hmm. And he blessed them. Hmm. And named them man. 
in the day when they are created. What Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's almost like this is a startup again, okay, after the dismal lives of Cain and his ancestors. God reiterates the creation truths. God created humanity. He is the creator God. Number two, he created him or humanity in the likeness of God, the Imago Dei. Also, God created them as a divine binary, male and female. He created them. No third way, male, female, that's it. And then he blessed them. Well, that's taken right out of 128, Genesis 128, where it says, God blessed them, and what? And told them, be fruitful and multiply. It's a reiteration of everything that he told Adam and Eve. So there are two families, the descendants of Cain, lived in a world without God and without hope. And on the other hand, the descendants of Adam through Seth, who began to call on the name of the Lord again. Now those who called upon the name of the Lord recognized their own human frailty and their need for God, and they depended upon and delighted in their Creator, who both gives and sustains life. And these were the true worshipers of God. The little phrase that you can see in in verse 4 of chapter 5, it says, he had other sons and daughters, is repeated over and over in this section of Scripture. For each consecutive generation, showing that humanity flourished on the earth. Individual lifespans were exceptionally long. Adam lived 930 years. Jared, 963 Methuselah, the oldest man recorded in the Bible, lived 969 years. And you're saying, Pastor, are you, are you, you believe that's real? Yeah, I believe it's real. The Bible says that it's true. God doesn't lie. There's no underlying reason to think that these were not their actual ages. This remarkable longevity greatly aided the propagation of the race. And even though they lived a long time, there's an interesting little phrase that's repeated eight times throughout chapter 5, and he died, and he died, and he died. Do you think God's trying to get something across? What I say will come to pass. My word is truth. And he said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And even though Adam lived 930 years, and he died physically, So, there's universal deaths, the inescapable consequence of sin that's spread throughout the human race, except for one notable example in verse 21 of chapter 5. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah, and Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, And he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. It doesn't say, and he died, like it does all the way through. So there is our first instance and harbinger of an event that is yet to come, which we refer to as a rapture, where Christ will come in the clouds and call his church believers to meet him in the air and to be with him forevermore. And there are other examples in Scripture, but this is the first. Now, 
God was pleased with Enoch's life. That's, that's what it means to walk with God. To walk with God means to the best of your understanding, you're obeying him. You're doing what you understand him and what he wants you to do. That is walking with God. It's very important. And with Enoch, God was happy with him and he took him to heaven. Now Genesis 5 ends with the name most well known. In 532 we read, Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is God's word in the way that it foreshadows. It's getting us ready for Genesis chapter 6 and following. God's word is written in such a beautiful way. In closing, let me present information that will help us to take everything that we've just heard today and apply it to our own lives respectively. I used to use a little phrase that if it's not profit, if it's not practical, it's not profitable. Just sheer knowledge just puffs up, makes us proud. But if we take the knowledge that we hear and we read and study in Scripture and we apply it to our lives, then it becomes profitable to us. And so I want to talk about the two paths that there are for life. Many people assume that they're free to choose their own way of coming to God and living the way they want to live religiously. But the biblical account of Cain and Abel and their two offerings reveals that God has clearly established an acceptable and right way for people to worship him. And a converse is true. The other ways are unacceptable to him. So the moral absolute stands in dark... this This is an absolute. And it's in stark contrast to the pluralistic age that we live in, which asserts that there is no singular way or truth or any absolute truth. That is far too exclusive. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to to me, but through the Father. Comes to the Father, but through me. Jesus is saying that. And so that is very exclusive, people. And and that is what we're going to suffer for. Believe me. (laughs) That exclusivity doesn't work in a world filled with earth dwellers that want everybody to be shoulder to shoulder and happy with each other. Group hugs on a sinking ship. How people to choose is not their personal prerogative. God has told us how to worship him. But God, the maker of the heavens and the earth, sovereignly reigning over the realm of human opinion, defines right and wrong for humanity. Another reason why it's so important to read God's word and to know God's word. And his ways are life-giving and they're good for the people that he made. It's kind of like if we had an automobile that runs on gasoline and we know it runs on gasoline, but we think, I think I want to use kerosene. How's the automobile going to run? Not very well. And, and that's the same as us leaning to our own understanding, following our own way of life, when God has prescribed to us who is our creator God, who made humanity, he's told us how to live here in the Bible. For us not to follow that is called sin. And there's repercussions for that sin. So, Cain's sad story also warns you who choose to resist God's authority. If you're that person, 
that you're doing that at your own peril. Satan asserted his will against the Creator and was cast out of heaven. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah. What? Oh, gosh, come on. Love chapter is what? I need to drill you more. 1 Corinthians 13. Faith chapter? Hebrews 11. That's better, okay? Satan, the fall of Satan is Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, okay? And you read there that Satan asserted his will. I will be like the Most High God and was cast out of heaven. Likewise, the first couple discovered that God's command could not be ignored without grave consequences. They disobeyed God and suffered for it. Every one of us, each one of us, is answerable to God for the path that we follow, whether the way of Cain or the way of God. Now, let me explain the way of Cain, because it's a, it's a technical term found in Jude 11 where Jude warns the people that read his letter, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? Cain's an example of a person who outwardly professes to worship God, yet inwardly rebels against his authority and disobeys him. When Cain's own attempt to worship was rejected, he turned his back on the true God and went his own way. Cain symbolically leads the way of everyone who rejects God, no matter what they say. We're having a lot of problem these days with people saying things, but living completely differently, (laughs) right? You know, don't believe your own eyes. Listen to what I say. It's everywhere. Those in the way of Cain follow their own authority and chart their own moral path. Like Cain, their lives are marked by pride, self-will, and an unbelieving heart. And they declare allegiance to the world and its pleasures, unaware that their path is leading to death. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the way thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14, 12. Never forget Jesus' sobering words from Matthew 7. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by it. Because narrow is the gate, And difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Mark in your heart to be one of the few who find that way. The way of God, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his way. That's from Psalm 128.1. Abel was a man who brought his offering to God in the way that God instructed, and Abel's obedience demonstrated his loving and dependent heart toward his creator. You want to see faith? People say, what is faith? The only way we can see faith is by obedient behavior to the things of God's word. It's like the invisible man, if you know who that was. There was a remake of the TV series. But the invisible man was invisible. You couldn't see him. And every once in a while in the TV series, somebody would take a coat or something and throw it over him, and then you could see him. The coat that you throw over faith is obedience. When you see obedience, you're seeing faith being lived out. And the contrast is true. When you see disobedience, you're seeing unbelieving, untrusting attitudes being lived out. 
So Abel's obedience demonstrated his loving and dependent heart towards his creator, and those in the way of God declare allegiance to God through their behavior, through their obedience. And those sinful and needy, they're marked by joyful submission and an obedient faith. I'll just close off with this. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He's like a tree that's planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. God's word so clear, and it's so simple to understand, but it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we're enabled to live it out. Let's pray. Father, what can we say when we come to a portion of Scripture so clear where we are able to see the evidence of faith and trust and able and able to see very clearly a heart of unbelief and disobedience in the way that Cain lived out his life. Lord, help us to be those that submit ourselves to you and cry out to you for that enabling grace, first to trust and love you and surrender our lives to you, but then to live day by day, moment by moment, under your authority. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.